Hi, this is Ashley Farode and you're listening to Behind the Bio, the podcast about the people behind the professions. In this particular episode, Tom Skinnan is my guest. Tom is an industrial designer and the founder of Skinnan Studios. Now, what is Skinnan Studios? Well, let me quote from the website. From ideas to execution, we are a design studio that collaborates with brands to create furniture, product and experiential design. During the chat, we talk about his business, the clients, the kind of work he's doing at the moment, and how he stays true to his creative calling while also balancing the ever-expanding requirements on his time. The conversation also touches on opportunities in the industrial design space in Canberra, his thoughts on replica designs, and how to say no to work without feeling guilty about it. So, if you're interested in industrial design, form and function, all those things, then this most certainly is the podcast for you. But this is also the right podcast for you if you're interested in business development and growth, especially in terms of businesses that have a home in Canberra, but reach out to the world. I'd like to thank the Coordinate Group for being the sponsors of this entire series, and I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Tom Skeeman. Hey Tom, how are you going? I'm good, mate. How are you? Good. Thanks for making the time. We're sitting up here in your new office. I was just talking about the fact that it's been about a year. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. yeah, new yeah. Space. So you've got some uh, workers next to you just over there who are going to veto everything you say. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and and yeah. laugh every time you say something incorrect. Yeah. Yeah, we've got a few people from the team here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In the background. No problem. How many people do you actually have altogether? Uh, seven of us in total. Yeah. Yeah, but not all of them in Canberra. Yeah. The majority of the team are. Um, and then, again, not all of them are here today. Yeah. Working from home. Yep. I should probably kind of point out too that the space we're in um, is kind of uh, most certainly an office, not a warehouse. What we're sitting in um, is essentially a bit of a meeting room and there's a couple of desks with obviously designers sitting there. Now, are they designers? That's right. Yeah, yeah. 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 So this is mostly who you have here in this location? Yeah, that's right. So the businesses are split up into two sectors. One's a design studio, but then we're also responsible for a lot of manufacturing and and delivering on products that we design. (laughs) So there is an arm to the company that is sort of focused purely on manufacturing and logistics. So we have an operations team and yep. kind of other people that support that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I guess the reason that I wanted to get into this is I thought we would maybe talk about the business first. Great. Just because it's of, it's of interest to me. But yeah. I think probably talking about the business will give us a very good basis to then maybe go backwards and talk about how you even got into this whole entire space. Easy. Um, Because, you know, now quite an accomplished person when it comes to uh, this industrial design space. And I just kind of wanted to preface this and tell me if I'm wrong, but I've always been told that in terms of industrial design, actually Canberra um, is quite a difficult place to make it, so to speak, because... We don't have a lot of manufacturing here. So a lot of the talent uh, that gets created in Canberra in that space ends up leaving to go to other places. So you're a bit of a head representation of somebody that stayed here and actually obviously made a name for themselves and ultimately has a really successful business. But it's not that common. I I can't think of too many of the top of my head who'd be in the same space as you. No, you're spot on. There actually aren't too many studios uh, focused on industrial design in Canberra. And 
it kind of depends on what you get into industrial design for in the beginning. And a lot of students are there to pursue the dreams of automotive design you right. know, or tech. And so if that is your path as a designer and that's what inspires you creatively, then you do have to leave Canberra at the moment. Yeah. But because I was kind of taking more of an architectural sort of approach, looking at furniture, interiors and the built environment, there actually was a sector here already mm. uh, that I could tap into the fringes of. So it was much easier for me to stay in Canberra. However, I did get lured away. I got offered a job at Breville, got pulled into a few Sydney consultancies, and I did sneak out of Canberra for a little while. Yeah. But realised quite quickly, if I want to do furniture, I might as well go back to my safe space and my network that's here in the ACT. So it's interesting because... Again, if I think of furniture design, mm. um, and you know, most of us will be familiar with big brands in furniture. Uh, you, again, you'd think that you know that's a pretty big market. There's there's a lot in that, but a lot of it a is overseas and then brought in, and most of it therefore would be in kind of major capital cities. And we are uh, a capital city, I should say, of course, but seen as regional by account of how many people we have here and all, all that. And again, you know, you've managed to make it in that space, and you actually realised that there was a uh, an opportunity for that here too. Yeah, and early on I sold a lot of furniture back into Canberra and had support from local businesses yeah. in the hospitality space and that allowed me to, I guess, develop product and fail fast and build a brand. But very quickly as the studio grew, our clients were all outside of Canberra, mm. in Sydney, Melbourne, Singapore, like interstate and, and now overseas. And so Canberra is just a home base. It's a safe space and you can prototype and I think do a lot here. But in terms of revenue, like it is definitely other cities in Australia. When you say clients before, just so we as the audience understand that, uh, are we talking manufacturers, large-scale manufacturers, or are they smaller manufacturers that want boutique clients? What are we talking about? A client would be the end user that I'd be talking about, but okay. also the middle person in that uh, process would be an architect. So quite often we're solving problems for architects that are then going out and, and creating solutions for their clients, that end user. And because we're in a commercial furniture space, most of our projects, mm -hmm. it's that partnership with the architect that's kind of critical. Okay. And we're then going to look at, um, let's just say, a breakout room for um, a foyer for a lobby mm -hmm. or uh, an education space for classrooms um, or an airport. They're kind of the, the sectors that we're in in commercial furniture. Yep. Uh, and so you're dealing a lot with architects. And again, Canberra has a great base, I think, of um, great firms. And when you say architects too, because mm. most people would think of architects as being those people responsible for the design of the home itself, as mm. opposed to kind of the interior stuff. And in mm. fact, I've had a couple of guests on, on the podcast series over the years who are interior architects and interior designers. Mm. You say you kind of lean into the architecture space. Is it architects or do you also get interior designer firms also coming to you and saying we actually want something specific as a solution? Yeah, I probably bundled that okay. in, in a bit too. Uh, like, so if I think of architecture, it'd be that we call it the A&D sector, architecture yeah. and design. Yeah. Uh, and across that, you might be looking at a large firm like Hassel. Yep. And they've got architects and you know, project architects and also in, an interiors arm. So we would work with that firm inclusively depending on what part of the project, but quite often it is an interior designer or interior architect that is specifying our product. Yeah. So if I think of your volume of work at the moment, and we don't have to get very precise, but yep. this is, I think, giving a really great picture. So of the 100% of work that you do yep. in, let's just say, a year, would I be right in saying that, I don't know, 80% of it is to do with projects such as the one you mentioned, where mm. it's 
uh, commercial or, or retail, whichever, fit-outs. And essentially what's happening is your clients technically are the firms that are doing that in the A&D space. Mm-hmm. And they request a bespoke or a specific look of a line that you've already got for that. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So if, to dive in, into the weeds a little bit, and, yeah. and this is changing quite a lot, the way that we're kind of repositioning the business and looking at more international work which I may touch on a bit later. But at the moment in Australia, we've got a great partnership with a distributor called Stylecraft and we've been working with them for 10 years and they're the ones that actually sell our product. So we design a collection for Stylecraft. They've got great relationships with all the architects around Australia. They've got showrooms in every state and in Singapore and they're actively out there kind of selling the product. Mm -hmm. And then you come back a layer where we do a lot of bespoke products which is which is what most people in Canberra know us for like the arc project that's um we've done on constitution Ave. Yep. that was with capezio copeland a local interior architecture firm and then they engaged us to d- design com- custom work for that project yeah, yeah. with the um the style style craft yeah. yeah are they related to design craft no no okay so it's no, just but me- but mixing but up names <laughs> definitely like and but very similar in their business model style craft yep. is more about distribution and nationally yep. you know whereas design craft's an amazing local yep. um, company that, that also sells furniture but, it does, yeah. but manufactures indeed yeah sorry that's why my head went in that direction sure. yeah. yeah um that was my kind of exposure to high-end designer furniture as well very yeah. different to everything else that's a beautiful show it certainly yeah. is and it hasn't changed in all those years right which is which is it's a classic in a way um, so going back to the stock, though, um, mm. so unlike, for example, in the, uh, I guess, the private space where, you know, we can go and buy a couch and it gets ordered and so forth, mm. a, a manufacturer has to hold a certain amount of stock. Mm. Do you have enough stock to essentially provide a representation of what it is that you have, but then it gets ordered, uh, made to order, structure? Probably, made so. made yeah. to order, okay. absolutely. We keep it very lean and in the contract commercial space if i'm working with an airport you know often there is um, quite a lot of lead time in the project so we yeah. might know about it a year in advance and then we're getting purchase orders three months out yeah. from delivery yeah. and working with the architect on fabrics and finishes and custom configurations and so we don't have to hold stock for that mm. however in the supply chain components and different pieces yeah we need to yeah it. that makes sense so you so that warehouse that you were telling me about yeah. um that's not too far away from here uh what's in that like what's apart from forklifts and things yes, <laughs> presumably yeah. on shelves yeah. is it some product is it materials mm. what's in there it used to be just stock yeah and at the moment we're shifting it into where i'd like to take the company especially you know getting through the pandemic and now restructuring a little bit that space is all prototyping and photography and it's just our play oh, right. creative space and because we're now relying on manufacturers in certain regions to kind of keep to this, let's say, a hub. We call it this supply chain triangle. And if a product is leaving Sydney to go overseas, then we might as well look to manufacture it in Sydney and keep that network quite localised, mm-hmm. same as in Melbourne. And then we don't have to ship something to Canberra for two months and then back to Sydney and then back out to Singapore yeah. and keep it really lean. Okay, that makes sense. So yeah, so that it's exactly it's not a warehouse in the traditional sense. That yeah. exactly it's full of couches and pillows. That's and stuff. right. Um, and the the manufacturer component, you, you've mentioned that obviously you have to get that done. How do you ever see that? I mean, so there's that a direct relationship that you've already got with some manufacturers that yep. you know will do things to a quality and a standard and the speed. Absolutely. Yeah, and and was that 
is that quite a difficult process? Because, I mean, I could imagine that in the chain here, so you've obviously got a reputation that carries you in terms of stuff that you've done in the past, mm. uh, hence future clients and everything else. But it's so dependent on that relationship that you've got in the middle with someone actually manufacturing that. Absolutely. Yeah, is that quite a... It's probably our biggest value add as okay. a creative studio in that space is our relationships with manufacturers and how long we've been working with them and how we understand them. Mm. They're the absolute backbone of the studio and they're the ones that realise our products. So we care about them and we try to learn from them. And so... If you come to our studio and, and you expect a certain service, you get all of that kind of on top. And I think that's what allows us to compete with international brands that we yeah. can be very agile and make things here you know, in Australia with our network. Yeah. And so I imagine that would have been quite an important part of the business, like you said, creating those relationships. Yeah. What were you looking for? I mean... I don't understand how big the manufacturing market is, so, so I don't know how much of a choice you had. I don't know if that's hundreds or tens, but however you dissected that, what did you look for? Like, How did you find alignment with what is essentially an external business to make sure that it's in line with your own? We call it our black book, and it's just about building relationships and, mm. and networking, much like you would in any other sector. And so you would meet these people you know, quite organically, usually the owners or founders and it's through recommendations so conversations like this sharing business names on podcasts um, going to trade events talking to other designers recently over the last few years we've struck up an amazing relationship with a company in collector called debco engineering and we were looking all across australia for someone to manufacture a metal chair a very particular frame and it was challenging but we couldn't find a company that was able to kind of do it to the quality and price and, and everything that we needed. And it ended up being shelved. We, we actually took this chair to Italy and, and launched it in Milan and had a great response, but we couldn't then realise it as a commercial piece. Mm. And it was through a, a local network of people who said Debco Engineering, they're a, you know incredible machinist, third-generation kind of um, metal fab and engineering shop. And they've got this great facility out at Collector, which you'd never imagine that there's this, yeah. this plant out there. And we got an introduction, you know, and got to go out and have a meeting and they're now producing that chair frame for us and have for a number of years. Yeah. And, and since then I've been quite active in promoting and sharing them and I know they're doing other pieces in the furniture space. So that's that network of kind of companies that you learn what they're really good at and understand their skills and where they're taking their business and try to then mm. give them more work. So as other businesses evolve and techniques and what have you, mm. you're kind of tapped into that because I guess if, like you mentioned, you know, there's a particular metal chair and however, the, the, the structure of it couldn't be attained in the way that you saw it. Mm. Ultimately, with evolution of techniques or either skills or experience, somebody does work it out. Mm. You just need to be able to find that person and then go, that's, that's what we need. Exactly. It's that contact list. And, and these relationships, they rely on a lot of trust. You know, they're, we don't know if a product is going to be as successful as the projections. Uh, there's a lot of money up front in prototyping mm. and development. Uh, and then yeah, that's, that's even if... Um, yeah, let's say even if it is successful. Sorry, I just I totally just went off. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> problem being in this space, in my, in my own space, yeah. doing a podcast, is I, uh, I keep looking at work, like projects. And going, oh, I love that. Shit. We, I, pro- we, I probably should say that. <laughs> yes, indeed. Around us, uh, yeah. quite a number of boards with things that say things on them, such as take offense, question mark, which, yeah. is that a cot? That is a cot. Oh, maybe a cot. There you go. Yeah, that's actually going to launch in two weeks. Um, we're right at the end of this project. We've done a nursery furniture collection for Hang on, but an Australian on. brand. Okay, so I need to understand this, This though. is This is the growth. But, but that isn't moving. absolutely that isn't commercial. Like it, I, I'm presuming some business didn't say we need 20 cots in this little waiting area. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So how did this happen? Tell me about that. So this is kind of when you look at industrial design. There's a few different models, I think, that or buckets that you can kind of categorize industrial design consultancies into. And for a long time, I was sort of in that cycle of design for manufacturing and and creating furniture that I would design and be responsible for producing and selling that to a company. And that's our relationship with Stylecraft. And it's amazing and it's still growing and it will continue mm-hmm. to. But then there's this whole other side which is designed for royalties or it's more of a service consultancy model where you'd have a, a company, for example, a nursery furniture brand, yep. would come to you and go, well, look, you're very good at, at designing furniture in this space. We have a problem you know, that we want you to solve. We want to compete in this area of the market with this type of cot. Can you design it for us? And so we then enter into a partnership with them where we're not responsible for manufacturing. We're just doing the thinking and the design process up front yep. and getting a fee for that. And then often receiving a royalty on each unit sold. Right. Okay. Yeah. How interesting. So, but is the product branded with your name though? It depends. Okay. Uh, it depends on your argument. Uh, yeah. Agreement. A lot of the yeah. time lately it is because we've started to build up a brand and there's sort of value for clients to, oh, even to partner branding. with us. Yeah. So it would be uh, in partnership. So in yeah. this case, it's a company called Tasman Eco mm-hmm. and it'll be a, a collaboration with Ski and Studio. But then how do they fund you if you're mostly sitting in that commercial space? How Do you know how that brand found you? Yes, I do, yeah. And this is part of repositioning Skiing Studio at the moment right. where we want I want to grow into a lot more of this kind mm. of work. Exciting. And it's quite exciting and I think the diversity of the briefs um, are, are quite fulfilling and you're kind of tasked with um, solving problems um, yeah, sorry. I'm, that I'm that are essentially different, different, different yeah. problems, right? Yeah. And, and again, like I said about the commercial furniture space, we're starting to get very good at that and I'm really proud of what we've created yeah. and that, I think that'll continue to grow. Yeah. Uh, but this also allows us to tap into clients all around the world very yeah, quickly. Yeah, it's a very good consultancy yeah. side of things. Especially through the pandemic. It was yeah. like how do we compete with the commercial furniture market slowing down yeah. and it's picked up again now. Yeah. But we, we've landed two new clients in America recently and it was just because of the way that we repositioned through the pandemic. Yeah, of course. But the way that that company found us was through um, a PR agency, uh, a marketing agency in Melbourne that I'd been on numerous trips to Italy through, for the Milan Furniture Fair. And they made the connection. And we've had dinners and, you know, sleep on the couch. And, <laughs> and then they were working for the nursery furniture brand for Tasmanico. And they were like, you need a designer to help reposition you. And then they put us in touch. With so in other words, you slapped your way to the top. Absolutely. Yeah, nice. Um, the beautiful thing about that is I, that's still, as you said, though, in the, I keep on pointing it even though people can't see, which is good because it's probably like commercial inconfidence. But uh, it's very nice, by the way, everybody. It's Thank essentially you. just a box. 
that's all. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, two years and that's just. Sorry, I'm just discounting everybody's. <laughs> no, no, please. It, it is a pretty exciting. But sorry, it's still in the. Um, it's still certainly in the furniture space. But could I ask this question? Let's just say a manufacturer of I don't know. Let's pick something else. Hair dryers yes. comes to you and says, "We've got." this but we'd want a design solution that essentially gives it an edge would you consider it or would that be outside of the consultancy kind of specialization is that getting too far away from what your vision is uh, it's, it's a little bit further away yeah. i definitely consider it or at least be part of that early discovery and strategy yeah. phase i think there's a lot of overlaps in the design process the industrial design kind of design thinking process <laughs> that any studio would go through in terms of identifying a problem and a way to solve it so we could bid in on that part. Mm. But when it comes down to design for manufacturing and, and even sort of technically around some of those high-volume you know, yeah. injection molded parts, that's where I'd go straight to forms well. They're another Canberra industrial design studio and Dan, the director, ex-Breville and like an amazing creative. I'd push the work to him. Because that's his space. That's his, that's his sort of space. He's yeah. really good at it. Um, also, they do a lot of sports and water bottles and that, that yep. sector. I get you. Um, and so in, in kind, I hope that then that would kind of come back the other way if they got someone kind of going. Yeah, down. I get you. Well, again, you landed with this client as a means of a connection that we joked about. You slept your way to that. Yeah. But really, it's the same thing. You then connect up other people. It seems to be a very collaborative um, response to that, which is, which is lovely in the industry. You have to, yeah. Just going back to furniture for a moment, um, most people, when I say furniture, I presume, would think of tables, chairs, sofas, things of that. Mm. But of course, it's more. What about things in terms of more like homewares? Let's just say lamps, for example. Is mm. that still in the way that you define furniture? Or, Absolutely. I'm just trying to figure out where your boundaries are to yep. the points of interest or specialization. And we're trying to find it out as well. Okay. I, I think we, I definitely want to be recognized as you know, a specialist in furniture design. Like that's, I think, yeah. our anchor. But around that space, you know, if you think about the context of a chair, you know, in a room, it's, it's there to kind of be that link, I think, between that built environment, you know, and all the other touch points. And the way that a designer or an interior designer or a homeowner might use that chair, you, you have to, I think, be considering everything else in that room. And because I'm able to design a product, um, it's you very quickly start going down the rabbit hole of working on door handles and light fittings. I was going to say it'd be very easy to um, homewares, oil burners, and and yeah. different things. And so we're trying to keep it relatively narrow and stick into the, the furniture space. But it, this year we're launching a new you know light with a brand, mm. um, and we've also done um, some homewares and some oil burners and some other products, yeah. which is amazing. They're great briefs and they allow you to kind of tap into different manufacturing processes. And pull your head out of chairs for a few months, you know, and then reflect on kind of, um, yeah, what what you enjoy about being a creative, and then. Yeah. I mean, it's it's beautiful that you've got that ability, and really, at the end of the day, the idea of creating a boundary around the definition of what furniture is is completely up to you, and you can bleed that in or out depending off the Absolutely. amount of work there is, and I don't think anyone's going to judge you for it one way or the other. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting because now that I think back to some of the furniture brands that I follow. I have noted some of them, actually probably the vast majority come to think about it over the years, have started with a, a base principle of particular furniture, usually sofas mm -hmm. and chairs and, and tables, that kind of stuff, side and, and dining and what have you. But within a relatively short period of time, that would extend out to what I would call homewares parts, mm -hmm. like trays, glasses, mm -hmm. other things. And I'm thinking, 
Oh, it's interesting that they're doing that. And I thought that was for a marketing reason, mm. meaning that if people like their furniture in the traditional sense, they're likely to then come back and go, oh, I can see how they've styled this chair with that particular glass on that table and what have you. Actually, I'll just buy all. So essentially, it creates a volume of uh, commercial ability for them. Absolutely. It's both. And yeah. whenever we design a single chair, it's always about expanding that into a collection very quickly. Mm. That This isn't supposed to work in isolation just as an armchair, but how going to be a family of products yeah and that shouldn't just exist to chairs why can't that tie into rugs or light fittings you know, um, or any other touch points in I, I have to tell you though I, I get the feeling that that i mean you don't have a marketing person do you in your team yeah yeah rachel oh right rachel yeah. okay yeah, yeah. And sorry Ka- and Catherine. yeah oh right well maybe yeah. it's they do i don't know yeah. they'll tell me if it's the truth or not yeah. but you know my mind from a marketing perspective automatically goes to what else does this apply to to kind of understand scope yeah. and so i could just imagine you know i mean if i was working for a furniture brand the first thing that i would do once you've got a core product and a loyal audience is i'd think how can you extend that out that influence over the customers in a positive way yeah and ultimately i'd be saying oh how about this how about this this is kind of a space we can compete in you know so i could imagine the marketing team actually being quite responsible for wanting you to kind of blow out that margin a bit but then you, you know you've got a vision ultimately and what feels right for the business too so yeah you have to balance that curiosity and and that's what i got into it for because i just like the process and then that journey uh, but yeah, then also the opportunity in business. Yeah. And yeah, that does expand very quickly. And we, we've gone down quite a few rabbit holes and explored <laughs> different projects and that are a touch off brand. Can you speak of kind of, uh, I mean, not particularly the client, but the most kind of out of scope kind of one oh, that you I, think I of? To, you have to give me a minute to, to, yeah, I don't know. So, <laughs> so, so many. Yeah. Um, yeah, you'll have to give me a minute. <laughs> so, well, the good thing is that it's not like you're going, oh, this was a mistake, this was a mistake, this was a mistake. Yeah. You, you, clearly the things that you, you toyed around with on the periphery, but they weren't really that much of an influence because if they were, you'd be, yeah, you'd true. be spitting oh, that out. Yeah, so, and, and in business, as you know, like it is all about that, that process of failure and, of and trying lots of different things. And I think it's easy as a designer to kind of justify different avenues and, and ventures because yeah. it's part of... Um, that curious process. Yeah. Yeah. Can I flip the other question? Mm. Uh, there was, we talked about clients before. I'm just wondering about this. I know that some businesses have done very well by having an understanding of who they are and therefore who they are working for or with. Mm. And at first it sort of sounds a bit arrogant to say, I only choose specific clients to work with. But let, let's just put that on the side. What it actually means is that our business and what we deliver is better suited to some. In other words, we're not just going to say yes to everyone. And there's a reason for that because right. then we can't specialize. Then we're not the right relationship and we can't technically be friends with everyone. I mean, even mm. in life, we make the same decisions, mm. which is why I decided to be friends with you. Thank you. Yes. Um, but so with your business too, are you... It sounds like obviously that you're very selective in terms of the manufacture process, but what about the clients that you work with that request things off you? Do mm. you ever get the situation where you get approached by a particular client wanting something and you're thinking, I'm, I'm, this isn't the right thing for us, either just by gut feeling or the request or perhaps the, the price point or something else? Do you ever have to do Quite that? Quite a lot. Okay. Yeah, and this is... It's great timing, actually, because only yesterday we did a team sort of strategy workshop where I was bringing everybody into the fold a little bit more around this sort of reposition and sort of looking at targeting a different sector of design, you know, and and also looking at this consultancy sort of space. 
and bringing this, the team along for this journey and thinking about choosing our ideal clients, but going quite big and bigger than what we think we know now and looking at international brands and, <coughs> and who, who's our ideal client and who do we choose to work with. Because I did say no to quite a lot of projects last year and usually they were based around morals like the company might the way that they manufacture their products or they're already existing in the replica furniture space so we decline you know those sort yeah. of partnerships uh, but then others are they're just a little bit off where you know yes we could develop that wayfinding kind of signage solution for your business and my team would just flip it quite quickly and we'd make money off it but it's a bit of a distraction mm. from actually our the core, core product and where we want to go. And that's the hardest thing I think as a business owner is balancing that revenue and wanting to hit budget for of the course. month and pay wages and knowing what my team's capable of, but then also staying true to, and looking for those kind of unicorn clients, those big fish. Yeah. I mean, it's that whole thing about not being everything to everyone, right? But it just it hit me that speaking to some other business owners in, in this series – uh, who are also kind of saying it is hard, but it is important to say yes to everything, mm. um, unless that's why you're pitching a business that is actually right. kind of that that kind of open thing, which is also fine. But 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 actually, it's it's a difficult necessity to actually have the confidence to say, mm. look, this isn't for us, mm. because if you take it you then might be taking yourself away from the opportunity of being able to take on the actual thing that was meant to be right as a relationship with somebody else. So true. That's exactly what I'm learning. I think it just takes time in business and that confidence in yeah. yourself and your brand. And I'm lucky to have the team that they'll, they can talk to me about this and be like, does this fit? Yeah. Yeah. And we can have those discussions. Yeah. And yeah, I think it's very important to understand your lane and become a specialist. That's I'm um, very interested in that and not become a generalist studio yeah uh, but putting some parameters on that i'm finding difficult yeah i'm, I'm sure it'll come somewhat naturally and somewhat by by design you gotta learn it right? <laughs> yeah pardon the pun um the other thing i was going to ask you you were talking earlier about you know the uh, example of that metal metal chair that you couldn't just quite find the right manufacturer just on that it made me think how much is your aspect or your kind of vision of design sometimes driven by the possibility of something. So to explain myself, let's just say you were reading a particular article and it talked about, um, and it talked about, say for example, a new product or a new manufacturing style that allows you to create something that wasn't potentially before available without particular support. In other words, something that opens up the way you could design that mm. before was restricted. Do you tend to look at that and go, that's actually really interesting. I'll see what I can think of with that in mind. So in other words, you're designing out of possibility in the evolution of a manufacturer rather than the other way around that you design and then you try to work out how to manufacture that. Yeah, it kind of goes both ways. Each year I try to set a brief for the business, for the team to work on that is a purely material research kind of focused. And there's no commercial expectations to it. There's no client. Um, it's just about diving into a particular sector or a particular material and in being that play state and kind of coming back to those really primitive processes, but then also looking out at other thought leaders or innovators in that space and what are they doing. <clears throat> and most recently it was aluminium. That's what we were playing with and you know, looking back on Robert Foster's career and Fink yep. and leaping off from there, uh, but then also trying to just go back to the beginning of, of um, what do we know about the material. 
And in that journey, we hope to then discover our own understanding of the material and then use that as inspiration for new projects. Uh, but then also great ways to communicate um, to manufacturers and get on a common dialogue. Yeah. But in, in the case of the chair that I was referencing, that it actually wasn't in terms of like technically an innovation uh, in process, that wasn't what was new. Okay. Um, it was using processes that were around, you know, post-war, like tube bending and very primitive. Mm-hmm. But it was it's the other equation of business that I couldn't quite solve. There's probably at least 10 businesses in Australia I would know that could make that chair. It's whether they would want to make that chair, mm. and that was the challenge. So going to a big factory that does lots of tube bending – but if I only want to do a thousand chairs a year, it's not enough for them. Oh, okay. Or if I want to make sure that it's perfectly square because I've got to put a cushion in it from another company and it all has to kind of work, uh, or if it needs a five year warranty at an airport, they're not interested. Right. And so then you're kind of coming back through to the right fit for that brief, for that particular chair. And in this case, it was that perfect storm of it needed to have a certain amount of craft in it but then also this commercial application very durable but not a high volume yeah, yeah so, so they're happy to do lower volume stuff yeah, yeah and it suited them because they are a specialist you know company and so they were happy to take on that work and that's where they compete in but you've got to find that business and then mm. build that relationship with them yeah and i completely understand what the, what the challenge that was mm. um it might be worth saying just because you snarked at it and i know you and i had this conversation in the past but it's worth putting on record what is your thought on replica furniture? Yeah. Yeah, just, just mention that because I know you and I spoke about it, but I think it's worth talking about because, you know, the usual argument to this is um, if you look from a purist point of view, there is a reason why somebody designed something and it's their copyright to it. Uh, the idea of replica furniture, and tell me if I'm wrong, I, I don't quite know if there is a time limit or what have you, but essentially it's the idea of taking somebody else's design, adjusting it by some percentage, whatever the laws are, which I'm not completely sure. Let's just say 15, 20. I'm sure you'll mm-hmm. enlighten me. And then actually, as long as you state that it's a replica and therefore not selling it as the authentic piece, you're technically allowed to do that. Mm-hmm. And then there's plenty of shops that kind of make money off that. And even if you take a, an Artemide lamp, mm-hmm. you can buy the original thing for a couple of grand or you can get this thing that looks like it, you know, for a couple of hundred bucks. But, I mean, some people kind of said that what that does in a way is it opens up things of semi-design to the public and what it does is therefore creates a demand for it. So isn't that a good thing because otherwise people just won't have access to it. The Mm. other side of that is you're essentially ripping off somebody else's design and that is no longer pure. Tell me what your thoughts on that are, because I think it's quite an interesting argument. In itself. It's a, such a big topic, and, and I enjoy talking about it, actually. Yeah. And I'm involved in quite a, a bit through the um, the DIA, the Design Institute of Australia, and kind of ch- actively changing our IP laws in Australia yep. to help give designers better protection you know, for their products. In Australia, it's kind of we're known globally as the Wild West here because we have some of the right. loosest um, design registration laws, you know, in the world. Mm-hmm. If I was to create something in Europe, um, it's very easy for me to get om- almost eighty years of registration plus. It's called Life Plus Life, and, mm-hmm. and it protects that design, and you can kind of go in with that and um, you know use that as leverage against other companies that might rip you off. Whereas in Australia, you've you've pretty much got a five year cover. And then you can extend that for five years. And then what happens? So let's just say after the five years, the, the, the cover goes the design out. Can, just, can it, I? It expires. But, but what does that mean? That I, that I can completely copy your design 100%? Yeah. All oh, right. 
Yeah. And so but I still have to st- I still have to state that this is a skin and replica. I, if you'd like to, that's, that's I don't even have to do that. No. <clears throat> no, and often the the way we, we use the word replica, like it's it's actually just a way to kind of mask using their name afterwards. It's sort of like a bit of a loophole there. And in other countries, that's also been changed. It is shifting in Australia. You know, we have been granted often a three month grace period now. That's sort of just recently come through, because the big kicker in all of this, especially if you look at five years plus five. It takes two or three years for a product to get traction yep. if it's going to be good. And how do you know if it's going to be good? You want to kind of fail fast and test the market. So you'll often launch at a trade fair. You'll share something on Instagram. You might enter a competition. But in Australia, the, the laws currently stand that as soon as it's out in the public realm, as soon as you've shared it, it now voids all of your um, design registration. So what I have to do is before something, anyone sees it, I have to go through the process of design registration. That I can do that myself, but mm-hmm. quite often it involves a lawyer and a certain amount of drawings and documentations, and then there's a, a bit of a process to that. It takes a bit of time. Then you get a, an approval. Then you're allowed to publicly share that. But you know we've actively got over 100 projects in development at the moment, and I'm, not all of them are going to be mm. commercially viable. And I've already seen your cot. And so which I'm ones going, do we pick? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Um, and so it is changing, you know, and we're definitely catching up with the rest of the world. Uh, so that's, the, I get the back end to it. But when it comes to that emotional sort of decision on buying replica, I totally empathize with people that, that understand that there's a gateway to kind of potentially understanding designed products. And yeah. by saying you have an Eames lounge and you're saying that word and you understand it, uh, but it, it very quickly devalues the design process and all of that work and energy and industry that went into creating the first one. You know, that's years worth of work. You know, we, we'll, I'm, I'm seven years in on a folding chair now that'll probably never go to market, right? And I just need to learn a lot more. I, I need to level up in business and understand the engineering of that chair. But it will exist eventually. We'll get it there. So when that goes to market... Someone can take that, reverse engineer it, and start selling it mm. for a fraction of the price Correct. that I could. And so some of it is about recouping those development costs, but it's also valuing and respecting the process and, and the journey that someone went through to create it. Yeah. And I think that's what's worth maintaining and, and trying to educate people on. Yeah, I mean, we could also put in the assumption here, which I think mostly holds true, that there is quite a different manufacturing difference in terms of standard and quality between original and replica. There's a reason why that stuff is cheaper, and it's not just because somebody's not trying to rip you off on the original design. Um, there is a significant difference between those two things. Um, and it, it, if anybody could understand that well, it would be someone that obviously does industrial design and understands the engineering of that too, uh, which, which I completely get. Just one thing that I wanted to check, we're talking almost in two ways. There's obviously things that you're developing in Australia before you're in Australia. Uh, protected by Australian law, and then you were talking about an Australian being protected by um, uh, overseas law. Is it the other way around too? So the Artemide that you mentioned is Italian? Yes. Yes. It's so, so I just realised that because the actual lamps are made in Germany sometimes. Yeah. That's why it threw me for a moment. See, I know my stuff there. Yeah, you do. That's a good but, light. Uh, yeah, it's it a good, is, it is well, good it's a great brand. Yeah. It is. Um, but anyway, so... Are they protected in Europe, but essentially when they import their things into Australia, or not even don't have to import it, that manufacturers in Australia can do that replica thing within that five-year... No, they, they've got... They'll often go for global design registration. Okay, there, there is something and, different. And you, you register into each country. 
so I only usually register into Australia because that's where we're competing. But recently we've done a couple um, in into Europe, yep. let's say into America as well. All right. So I'll ask the question in a slightly different way. Mm. What about the idea of um, inspirations? I mean, clearly in the creative world, uh, it's actually quite okay to be heavily inspired by something. Mm. And there's a fine line between <laughs> ripping off and inspiring. In fact, one of the, the lectures that I give as a, just as a guest lecture around marketing, and one of the slides at the end, because I try to be cheeky, as I said, it's okay to plagiarize. Mm. You should see the other lecturers look at me, what are you doing? And I said, just, just go with me on this. Mm. Anyway, and I kind of start talking about the differences between that. And I said, you know, all the, the great creatives that I've read about and know take inspiration from other things. They'll go to art museums, they'll go and meet people, they'll find inspirations, take that, readapt it, put a bit of themselves into it and mm. do something else. That's evolution of, mm. of design thinking and creative thinking and what have you. Um, but ripping something off completely, thinking that no one will notice, that's pretty lame, man. You're going to get caught out. Absolutely. But what about that aspect of it? Do you think if, say, for example, let's go back to that meter lamp, you're not just trying to replicate it by changing it down by 15% so you mm. can get around the law, but we're hoping to improve it and therefore it's clearly inspired by it mm. is that okay in your mind or is yeah, that once again quite it, it is such a gray area it, it kind of has to pass the pub test yeah. um, about whether whether it is clearly a, a reproduction of that yeah. work or whether it's taking that and, and leaping it forward yeah. into something new yeah it, <laughs> it, it is very difficult it, it, yeah, I mean, I mean, the designer knows deep at heart which way yeah. they've gone with this, and, and I think the public knows. Yeah, you, you know when you look at something and understand. Like, yeah. is that from that designer? Is it an evolution of that product? Mm. Yeah, or is has it come from a, its own space, its own journey? Yeah, no, I completely get you. And mind you, you know, the thing that I was telling you about me following particular furniture makers, that they most certainly borrow out of things, you know, fads and other looks and feels. But actually, what makes them really great is that. Unlike looking through a lot of, say, homeowners of furniture websites, you eventually get to one where you think there is something about this mm. that speaks to me. Now, that could just be the aesthetic, but most certainly what it is is that it all holds together in a particular style that you just haven't seen across yep. others. And yes, it might still lead to particular, you know, uh, fads that I have in place or um, kind of fashions at the moment, but nevertheless, you're looking at this thinking, Actually, you know, the pub test for me is mm. I can pick off furniture in people's homes from time to time mm. because I look at things and I go, hey, that's a blah. Mm. And I'm thinking the reason I know that is because they have a particular stamp on a look and a fear which they've made their own, mm -hmm. even though really that couch is very similar to many others, but there's something about it that right. allows me to pick it. Mm. That's a pub test. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, and that, and that's exactly how it will hold up in court as well. Like that, that's kind of how you argue it. I'm going to get a court about your cot <laughs> yeah, when <please>. we're. <laughs> yeah. All right, um, going back to you for a moment. So, mm. if I think of all the things you were just talking about, design's a massive part of it. it relationships are a massive part of it. Uh, the industrial component, or the engineering, is another. Right. Mm. Then of course there is the business. Like even you were saying, oh yes, I could find someone that bends tubes, but mm. how much are they going to do of that? How much does it cost? Mm. There is the, the the numbers of it and everything mm. else. Did you know that this is what you were going to be doing? If I go backwards 15, 20 years, and th did you imagine that this is the space you'd be playing in? 
No, not at all. Yeah. Like it's the business of design. Like that's my role now is to sort of lead this studio forward yeah. and, and make some of these decisions. And I spend a huge amount of time on Excel straight after this podcast. I'm going into a three hour meeting with my accountant. Like I've got a business coach and mentors and um, most of my energy is actually now on other parts of solving problems in yeah. different ways. And, and I never would have imagined that that's sort of where one, my position would end up uh, and and that I'd be privileged enough to work on some of these really So cool it happened projects. organically? Like you picked up those skills as you kind of went along? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, my background, I was kind of destined to go into a trade essentially. Like the way that I grew up, my father's in furniture but more in construction and um, carpentry. Yeah. And I grew up in a smaller country town. And so it, the leap into university took a really long time i didn't know about industrial design um, i felt like i wasn't smart enough to be an architect but i was very curious and i loved building and, and playing that's where I, I think i was um in my my happiest sort of moments growing up and so it took a little while to kind of find where i would, I would fit in you know professionally so some of those skills i'm catching up on now i think i've got a pretty good benchmark on life skills and work ethic and and how to conduct Certainly. myself um, but in terms of yeah business development um I'm, I, was, I was doing a master's um an mba in adelaide I'm kind of halfway through that now like all this is coming in much later in my career yep. i'm sort of stacking on top of the design career yeah i mean the, the reason i'm asking this question is i, I think it would be encouraging to those who are thinking of going into it, but not listening to this podcast and going, bloody hell, I just love design. And all of a sudden I've got to be like Tom, who's got accounting in his mind and business approach. But I guess what we're saying here is one step at a time. Absolutely. Follow follow the passion, so to speak. And these things do come. Because I was going to ask this kind of question, said if you knew what you, sorry, if you knew where you were going to be now, Mm. back, you know, when you were kind of kicking with uni, Mm. would you have done anything else to better prepare you for this? But am I right in saying, well, no, what you're telling me is you followed your desire to essentially get into this space. And as you realize there are other things needed to bring in to ultimately run a, a successful business, you just lap that up and now you're doing the MBA and other stuff. Yeah, it's just about that lifelong learning. I think yeah. that's something that, that that's the constant. Um, what I was learning changed drastically and it's changing now. And I'm sure if we chatted again in three years, it'd, it'd be different yeah. again. Uh, but yeah, definitely early on, it was more about uh, design and manufacturing and just learning um, how to play in that space uh, and create a brand and just connect. You know, and that was sort of where all my energy was. Yeah. So lots of marketing books and lots of manufacturing books and, and meeting people. Like Lonsdale Street Roasters was my first client in Canada oh, right. when they were on, had one tiny store on Lonsdale <laughs> yeah, Street. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. And it was through that relationship that I kind of got a foot in the door around solving a problem like what was their pain points they had a very particular aesthetic and they didn't have a lot of money at the time Mm. and so i i went in and kind of developed a cafe stool for them and then that then started to steamroll um the my career in and my business but every job was a fuck up like we just lost money and like the stools wobbled and like they scratched and you know it, it it was a disaster but um, I loved every part of it, you yeah. know, and because the next time we did it, we made a tweak and it got better, and you know, that's just the exact same position now. Yeah, but I, the fact that you're now so much grown into business in the true sense, mm. that's not taking you away from the time that you can spend on your passion, though, right? 
A little bit, yeah. But I'm, I think I'm enjoying the shift a bit more around mm. a, back to solving problems and looking at a creative solution to a, um, something, a situation. Yeah. yeah, that's just business. Yeah, and ha- where do we take the studio? And having these conversations and learning mm. about other people, I'm enjoying that a lot. Yeah. Um, but I, I do find that I need to slow down a little bit and set a project that is sort of for me or I get bright in, in the weeds a little bit more because I miss that and that's mm. kind of what I got into it for. I mean, the other thing too is you clearly have, you know, other people behind you now and they fill in those aspects mm. and your progression through the business ultimately provides a path for them as well. So there is that aspect of it. You're, you're not, you might be moving away from directly working on the passion thing all the time, but ultimately mm. you're giving therefore that to other people. Hopefully. I think, yeah. yeah, that's one thing that I probably didn't touch on before. I think that anyone that's successful in our sector, like in our industry, you know, have been helped by people before them. And early on, you know, I've had so many doors open because of other designers that are so generous, you know, with their time and, you know, Robert Foster was one of mm. them, but even Stylecraft, looking at Ross Gardam, who is an incredible Australian designer, who I'm essentially coming in to compete with with a product in this space, he'd share with me his pricing spreadsheets and manufacturing contacts nice. and tell me horror stories about photo shoots so I can I get leaps ahead in terms of experience that he had to learn the hard way mm. that he's now told me. You know, so I think being really transparent with that for that next generation, whether they're your staff or people coming in just wanting that conversation, nice. really important. And the truth is, you know, they've done that for you for whatever reason, altruistically or otherwise, mm. or maybe just for you, or maybe they do that to everyone. doesn't matter. The point is now you can see the benefit of that and therefore you pass that on Absolutely. and that creates quite a nice culture of... Mm. Uh, kind of empathy but also guidance and all those kind of things absolutely and i'm still looking for it now like i I need that support to take the studio and and my family and and everything that i'm doing to that next level you know Mm -hmm. and so i expect that or want that um yeah you got to pass it on pass it down yeah I think that's, that's beautiful. Well, look, it's, it's a perfect spot for us to finish off. I still have to take photos of that um, cot so I can spread it on Instagram. Please. Um, so, Let me register it first. Yeah. Give, give me a week. I'd probably change the color. <laughs> I don't mind. Yeah. But anyway, um, <laughs> so yeah, I'll just say it, and I'll just be skin and replica by Ashley. Absolutely. There you go. Yeah, see how that works. Just give me a, a royalty. It's fine. Yeah, no worries. I'll, I'll give you 2%. Yeah, perfect. Uh, get, get your lawyers to call my lawyers. <laughs> There's another thing you can add. You can start, start um, studying legal books now just for this case oh, we're about to hit. <laughs> anyway, look, it's been lovely talking to you. We'll keep on running it into each other at <clears throat> lifts and things and buildings and what have you. So it's nice to actually have a bit of a sit down. Um, I think I did a home story on you, but that was such a long time ago. Mm. I don't know if you remember. I do, yeah. That was back in your older place, I think, from mm. memory. Um, but yeah, so it's kind of nice to, to kind of connect again. Yeah, mate, thank you for the, the opportunity. You're doing great things and it's a oh, privilege to be on here. It's a pleasure. Thank you. So there you have it. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Tom Skinner regarding all things industrial design. I hope you enjoyed an insight into that world. By the way, I mentioned the website in the intro. It is worth checking out, skinnan.com.au, specifically because it gives a really good insight into the kind of projects that they have worked on in the past that are currently working on. If you have an interest in the design space altogether, there are quite a few other episodes that I've done with people in that industry. So go back to the catalogue if you haven't listened to them and check them out. I think you'll find it worth your while. 
And if you think someone else would benefit from listening to this episode or even any of them, then please let them know. That is how this podcast has grown. While I'm at it, I just want to say thanks again for all the listeners that I've been receiving to this series. It's fantastic to know that for the third year running, it's doing exceptionally well in every single aspect of engagement. So thanks to you. And if you'd like to get in touch with me, then please do so. I always enjoy it. It's Ashley underscore for road at outlook.com. Or if you prefer Instagram, then at behind the bio podcast. Again, thank you to Coordinate, who've been the supporters of this podcast right from the very beginning, and I hope to catch you at the next episode of Behind the Bio.